0: My name is Marie LeConte. Welcome to The Bunker. I'm going to start this podcast by shamelessly promoting some of my old work, specifically my first book, Haven't You Heard? It's a book that's technically about political gossip, but really about the role that personalities and personal relationships play in British politics. While researching it, I was struck by how little academic research there was about the more informal and human side of Westminster, even though everyone agrees that it matters a lot. This is why I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. James Weinberg, a political academic at the University of Sheffield and author of Who Enters Politics and Why? Hi, James.
1: Hi, Marie. Delighted to be here.
0: Oh, thanks for coming. So, first of all, would it have killed you to write your book a few years earlier? Because I really would have found that helpful.
1: (laughs) If only. Uh, I'm afraid the, the world of academic research and publishing is interminably slow.
0: Fine, fine, um so more seriously, what made you decide to look into the human side of politics? because I know that for me it was very much working in Westminster and thinking, "Oh wow, like this is both a weird world but also a world full of deeply weird people. What's going on there um so did you have a similar epiphany?
1: hmm I'm not sure that I had a, a kind of singular epiphany as um much as a, a gradual realization that you know we've got this popular fascination with the human side of politics and there are still so many unanswered questions. So, you know, for example, I've rarely met a colleague, a student, a friend, family member, taxi driver even, um, who hasn't asked me, you know, what do you do for a living? And when I've said I research or study politics, um, then they, you know, always respond, well, aren't they all just a bunch of greedy crooks? And yet when I've asked them, you know, what's the evidence for that belief, they might draw on Mm. one, two, sometimes no examples of really high profile blunders um, and scandals. For me, this was an interesting conundrum because my intuition told me that these accusations couldn't possibly be levelled at all politicians, but at the same time, I couldn't say for definite that the accusations wouldn't hold. So I tried to set out to answer that question with some evidence.
0: I really like that, just the idea that you were like, I'm done with taxi drivers, I need to have some data to hit them with. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but so actually, so what, why do you think MPs as people have been studied so little? Is it that academics tend to prefer quite clean, quantitative research?
1: It could be, but I think um, I think it's worth starting by saying there's actually quite a long history of research into who our politicians are, but very little of it actually engages with them as as participants in a research project. So you know, from kind of seminal figures like Freud onwards, there's quite a rich seam of what we'd call psychobiographies about world leaders and politicians. Um, in the sixties, um, Alexandra and Juliet George published uh, a study of Woodrow Wilson. You know, kind of delving into his childhood and everything um, onwards from that. And that became a very prominent and well cited example. Uh, And more recently, we've got analysis of speeches, ethnographies of politicians. And all of those kind of at a distance methods make sense in a world where access to politicians is really hard. Um, I mean, I was very envious of people like Donald Searing, who were studying politicians in the 70s. So, Um, If you haven't heard of Donald Searing, he managed to interview, I think it was about 520 MPs, and he got a response rate in a questionnaire of around 80%. You know, if you fast forward to kind of 2010-11, even the Hansard Society, with all of its kind of reputational clout in Parliament, could only get a response rate of around 20-25% amongst new MPs. So the ability to access MPs for research is incredibly hard. And then you couple that with the idea of studying some sort of psychological phenomena, such as personality, and you come up against the added ethical dilemmas of kind of highly politicized fears about confidentiality. I've constantly found that politicians are very wary of conducting interviews in person near a parliamentary estate um, because they fear being overheard and then colleagues either within their party or in other parties weaponizing their words. So, yeah, it's not clean, um, incredibly tricky, time consuming, takes a lot of perseverance.
0: Mm, No, that makes sense. And actually so very much on that topic. So for your book, you got in touch with every MP in the Commons, and then so 106 of them agreed to interact with the study. And of those 17 agreed to do in-depth interviews. So that were you expecting more or fewer to cooperate, or were you yeah, were you surprised or unsurprised, I suppose, by
1: how that went? I was pleasantly surprised in the end. I mean it was tiresome, it was slow going, but I knew that was the nature of gathering data from politicians. But I knew that data on MPs alone wouldn't be enough to answer the questions I'd set about who goes into politics and why. So roughly 12, 18 months later, I also fielded surveys um, to all candidates who'd stood in an election, uh, local or national, between 2010 and 2019. So that produced an additional sample that I use in the book of about 415 elected councillors. Another 62 elected MPs in office at the time and about 500 unsuccessful parliamentary and council candidates. And I was absolutely thrilled with that because as far as I know, that is the largest, if only, data gathering exercise on the personality of UK politicians conducted to date that gets data from politicians.
0: Did you did you have a stage towards the end where you're like I actually never want to talk to a politician ever again for as long as I live?
1: Um, I'm not sure it was even towards the end. It might have come earlier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I'd already secured funding for another three year project working with politicians, so I couldn't get out of, uh, of, of going straight back into that minefield again.
0: Um, so actually talking about the study itself and maybe especially the kind of longer interviews you did, like, were there any surprises in there or stuff you weren't quite expecting?
1: Yeah, so I was actually pleasantly surprised by how much MPs opened up over the course of some of the longer interviews. Um, I remember one of them told me that they felt like they'd done an episode of Desert Island Discs.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> so it was therapeutic for some of them. Um, And and I think after a few cagey exchanges at the start of each interview, there was a sense in which most of them showed some sort of relief at being able to talk openly about their personal experiences in Parliament, the real motivations they had for running for office. Um, There was a sense in which they struck out at popular cynicism and media portrayals of MPs as all the same. It was a chance for them to to try and set the record straight a bit in that sense. Um, But they also, you know, one thing that surprised me was their honesty about their colleagues. Um, and I think there's there's one excerpt that I include in the book from an interview with a former Labour minister um, who candidly recounted conversations with Blair prior to the decision to invade Iraq um, mm. and the extent to which he was, let's say, incentivised uh, to be diplomatic to get behind the party line and vote for that invasion and then they kind of wrangle with that decision or have been wrangling with it ever since so that level of of honesty was something that surprised me but i think adds a huge amount to what i was able to say in the book
0: Mm. No, that, that weirdly that doesn't yeah massively surprise me because I think cause I write a lot of features the same I kind of have to sit down with MPs for a long time and it is quite funny the sort of first five minutes they're very physically sort of buttoned up and then eventually when they're like oh you know you're not the sun trying to catch me up on something like catch me out on something they'll just be incredibly chatty um, but I, arguably sometimes you're like okay I, I don't really care about this but, so thank you for opening up but that's not relevant but so that before we go in deeper on your on your research I feel like I should ask you to clarify so for. In the context of the study, how did you define personality?
1: That's a really good question. And it's, it's probably one for the psychological politics nerds out there who are listening to this. Uh, yeah,
0: in their millions, in their millions. Yeah.
1: So personality then. Well, there's a famous psychologist called Henry Murray. And he said that, um, you know, personality is the most comprehensive term in, we have in psychology. And that is very true. There are so many different approaches to it. And in this book, I take... What would be known as a kind of social cognitive approach. So, very simply, personality is a as a dynamic system of characteristics that mediate the relationship between the individual, you and me, our listeners, um, mm-hmm. and the environment, and they account for what um, we are, what we might become, or what we do in any any individual setting. And there are lots of kind of conceptions and measures of personality that come under that definitional umbrella. And the two that I've used when studying politicians are known as the big five personality traits and basic human values. And it's the latter of those that I draw upon in the book. So... In essence, there are 10 sets of values, Um, power, achievement, hedonism, stimulation, self-direction, universalism, benevolence, tradition, conformity, and security.
0: And together they fight crime. And together they fight crime, and they each
1: have different colored suits as well. Yeah, Marvel are going to come calling any (laughs) day now. Um, And they each represent sets of um, trans-situational goals or motivations that act as guiding principles in our lives. And we tend to... Settle on the amounts of importance we attribute to these different value sets in childhood and early adolescence. And then they remain incredibly stable after that throughout the rest of our life, of course. And um, not only do lots of, uh, of studies find that people find their values and other personality traits to be incredibly important for their self-identity, but they predict loads of behaviours in our daily lives, um, including occupational behaviour, which is what makes them useful studying politicians. Hmm.
0: And so in that case, so what, what are the main ways in which politicians differ from normal people?
1: Um, if we start with the, the importance that was attributed to each of these 10 basic values, then the the value hierarchies. So if we were to put all of these values in a list from hmm. one to 10, um, based on, on scores on surveys for what someone finds most important in their lives or least, then the hierarchies for MPs in the British public only overlap in three of 10 positions, whilst counsellors in the public only share one commonality. And going into more kind of detailed statistical analysis, MPs' actual mean scores, uh, so their average scores for each value, also differ from the public to a high degree of statistical significance across seven of these 10 um, basic values. So, well, what does that mean? Well, um, MPs appear to be significantly more driven by motivations to care for those around them and support those they know personally, possibly a, a shocking revelation for the more cynical listener. Uh, they're significantly more driven by creativity and autonomy, having control over their own behaviours and uh, self-direction, significantly less motivated to preserve traditions or secure stability in their own lives or that of society, but also more motivated than the public to control resource and be in charge of others. Um possibly the less surprising finding for the cynical listener. Mm. Um, but here's here's where it gets more interesting. So those same differences appeared between members of the public and local councillors, as well as MPs, but mm. also between members of the public and people who'd run for office unsuccessfully. Mm. So very basically, it seems to make sense to talk of a political animal, mm. so to speak.
0: quote a lived MMP in the book saying that most politicians are assertive. I found that mm. quite interesting because most non-politicians probably aren't especially assertive. But then again, you know, most accountants probably have great attention to detail and most non-accountants don't. So is it, you know, this may be sort of above your pay grade, but is it inherently a bad thing for politicians to be different from the people they represent?
1: So I think that's, you know, that's a really normative question with probably lots of subjective responses. Mm. But I'd say personally, on the face of it, the answer is yes. Mm. So, you know, there's lots of people in um, academia who kind of argued on the basis of that, that the makeup of parliaments ought to mirror the physical appearance or socio-cultural experiences of the nation. So at an aggregate level, my research adds to our understanding of the UK Parliament as a non-descriptive legislature in which politicians are not only kind of physically and culturally unrepresentative of the nation, but also psychologically unrepresentative. Uh, And that's important when we think about how powerful personality can be at predicting attitudes, preferences, and even behaviours. Now, at the same time, I think the answer to that question also depends on how politicians differ to the public. So for instance, if politicians are more driven by a need or desire to help others, then it's probably a good thing that they're not like us. But if they're more driven to prioritise their own self-interests or those of social groups they know personally, then it's probably a bad thing. And the data that I collected in this study points to the possibility of either scenario. So you've got politicians scoring higher than the public for values like benevolence and universalism, but they're also scoring higher than the public for power values. Which of these differences manifests more in politicians' behaviour and decisions will depend on their environment and the way in which their environment activates different values. And you might say that actually our current political and parliamentary environment is much more geared towards activating the self-enhancing aspects of politicians' personalities than their better characteristics.
0: Um, And so like stepping out of the bubble for a moment, you quote a study in the book that said that voters, I quote, want somebody who will do their bidding, listen to them and not break promises. Yet they will hold in contempt the leader who merely follows the polls, has no vision and refuses to make tough and popular decisions." So do you think the public can sometimes have, shall we say, unhelpful expectations when it comes to their politicians?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, this is the the kind of classic trap account of politics. Um, In his classic uh, in defence of politics, you know, Bernard Crick, God, this was in the 60s, I think, you know, lamented that politicians had to constantly wear different masks and compromise on their own goals, those of others to survive what is essentially a really messy, volatile game. So, you know, if you act on deeply held principles, then you're seen as noble. Uh, Sustaining those is even more admirable. But if you are too dogmatic in sticking to a set of principles, then you start to get criticized for kind of perpetuating stalemate or political stagnation. And then if you divert from your principles too quickly to reach a compromise with another party, you're often cast as unreliable or opportunistic. Mm. So, you know, in one moment, the public wants somebody who will do their bidding and listen to them and not break promises. And in the very next moment, they want someone uh, or they're going to hold in contempt a politician who merely follows the polls, has no vision, mm. quote unquote, or refuses to make the kind of tough decisions that they think the country needs. And and that's where the trap is laid.
0: Mm. So I guess, like returning deep inside the bubble. We've talked a bit about the differences between politicians and the public, but what about the differences within politics? So do Labour and Conservative politicians, for example, have different personalities?
1: Yeah, so this is a really good question. And While all subsets of politicians do differ from the public, I did find some differences existing between party groups. So, for example, I found that um, Labour SNP and Lib Dem MPs and voters scored higher for self-transcendence values than their conservative colleagues and peers. Um, You know, and that in many ways kind of reflects the ideological foundations of the the UK's centre-left parties, the kind of strong advocacy of social welfare ideals, which would be attractive to people who care more about others than themselves and wanting to help people. Um, Conservative MPs scored higher than other uh, MPs for conservation values, um, conformity, tradition, security, which again seems in line with a party whose historic ideological roots kind of point to preferences for social and economic um, hierarchy. Mm. But what's possibly more informative than looking at the differences just between MPs and parties is looking at that kind of mapping of MPs to their voters. Mm. So I actually found that voters for parties on the left of British politics, primarily Labour, were more psychologically akin to voters on the right and elected politicians on the right mm. primarily conservative MPs than those politicians on the left that they actually elected and the same was true of non-voters so that actually paints a really worrying picture for politicians and parties on the left mm. you know labor in particular who don't appear to have a psychological affinity with their existing voters or those who don't vote at all it would seem that basic values is kind of a part of that system of personality helps people to make political choices consistent with their basic values by electing conservative governments and and politicians on the right. And that might explain why the Conservative Party has held government Mm. for a lot longer than the Labour Party has.
0: Well, I feel like, yeah, as as a foreigner, I was always taught that Britain is a kind of small C conservative country. Um, So yeah, oh, that's so interesting. So looking at personalities again, so Let's look at, for example, like, you know, perennial backbenchers versus sort of like very successful ministers. Like, are are they different people as well or does that not really change anything?
1: Yeah. So th- there were two differences between MPs in the sample who'd gone on to front bench and those who'd stayed on the backbench. So on one hand, MPs who'd scored kind of highest for achievement values. So people who wanted to kind of show that they were successful and achieved by... Uh, kind of social and public standards were about forty two percent more likely to have gone on to be a minister or higher hmm. i'll let the, the the listeners decide whether that's a good thing or not uh, but at the same time those who'd scored higher for conformity values they were about fifty three percent less likely to have gone on to to hold a front bench position so those two findings together say something interesting about the role of personality in determining not only political success for those who want to enter politics per se, Mm. but actually those who might climb to the top of that greasy pole.
0: Hmm. And so are there any other criteria that are likely to influence a politician's personality? So ethnicity or religion or gender?
1: I didn't unearth any differences between politicians' personalities by ethnicity or religion, but I Mm. did find that women MPs, um, were more motivated than their male colleagues by self-transcendence values and, and less so by conservation values. So
0: even in the Conservative Party, assuming?
1: Even yeah. even in the Conservative Party, yeah. So they were less concerned with kind of stable and harmonious social relationships uh, than male colleagues, uh, more confident when it came to violating social expectations and um, norms. And I actually think it's appropriate to place those findings within the context of, of Westminster's gender imbalance. So actually, these characteristics I've unearthed seem highly apposite for anyone entering politics, but especially for women who are having to show extraordinary resilience and ambition to overcome the effects of um, a kind of highly gendered working environment.
0: Hmm. I don't know that makes complete sense. Um, so I'd now like to finish uh, with not one but two really tough questions. Um, so the first one is: How much do you think Parliament actually influences the personalities of MPs? So I know you, you've said you said earlier that you know people's values and stuff like don't change massively throughout their lives, but I don't know. I, I do feel you know in my own very much vibes based experience of working in Westminster for kind of eight years or so. I've definitely, I feel like, watched some people get weirder and weirder, you know, the the more time they kind of spent in Parliament. Um, Is my vice-based assessment correct in any way? Like, actually, is is there any way of kind of studying, you know, again, nature and nurture, I suppose?
1: I actually think that, I think that's highly unlikely. Highly unlikely that the political environment changes politicians' personality. Not least because we have 75 years plus worth of evidence showing that people's personality characteristics are extremely robust, but what I do think is more possible is that being in parliament, which is a really weird and unique place to work, mm. activates particular personality characteristics, um, including those aspects that might not have defined someone's personality outside of parliament, mm. and also constrains the expression of characteristics that may have done. Yeah, because politicians, you know, are like all of us, are constantly upweighting or downweighting their own goals and motivations, what they say and what they do, in line with the, the kind of context-specific expectations placed upon them. And, you know, I can not I can think of very few jobs in which you are placed under as much scrutiny and heightened expectation as being a politician. Mm.
0: Okay, well, fine. I feel like, yeah, my, my vibes-based approach still sort of stands, so I'm happy with that. But <laughs> um, so finally, in a few sentences, James, do politicians yeah. have the right personalities for the task at hand?
1: A nice, uh, yeah, quick-fire question <laughs> to finish. Um, I'm, I'm going to... Plead the be, fifth. <laughs> yes, a classic academic, and, and sit on the fence this one, give you a slightly conditional answer. So in essence, I think we do get the right politicians, but they operate in a, a really febrile political climate uh, and an institution that's characterised by conflict, mm. both of which activate their less desirable qualities and would, I should add, probably do the same to any of us if we worked in that environment. Mm. So if we can change our political environment to one that is slightly less cynical, slightly more consensual, then I think our politicians largely have the right drives to do a very good job. Well
0: done. That was very balanced.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I tried. Hmm. I tried.
0: Um, Great. Well, this was such an interesting chat. Thank you so much, James.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get access to episodes early and without adverts, as well as exclusive merchandise offers. I'm Marie LeConte and you were listening to The Bunker.
1: The Bunker is presented by Marie LeConte. The producer was Chris Jones, managing editor Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, and our music was by Kenny Dickinson. Audio production was by me, Robin Lieber, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.